0: Hebrews chapter seven. Everybody get a paper. Take that as a yes. Oh yes. There we go. Hebrews chapter seven. So I think, Lord willing, we will do the whole chapter seven. So if there is discussion, that puts everything in jeopardy. Not to say I'm not interested in the discussion. I am. Worst case scenario. Bring your paper back next week and we will finish the blanks Because last week we had what typically is a very controversial topic We got through it pretty safe, I felt like We came out on the other side Um, No sparring As far as I know, no one quit the church over So I think we came out well This week is also a highly debated topic If you're even familiar with it So a lot of people don't even know that this is a topic to debate about. And if you don't, just don't make it one, because it's not worth making one, even though people tend to make this one of those things. But it's a fascinating topic, and it has a specific role in the argument of Hebrews. And if we get too focused on the side argument going on in this passage, we will miss what the author of Hebrews is doing um, argument-wise with this concept. So we want to make sure we don't miss that so that we can see very clearly what um, the author of Hebrews is doing. So let's just recap, and just as kind of an open quiz of what's happened so far in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews is written to what audience experiencing what problem? Christian, Christian Jews. Jews. So, uh, Persecution from non-Christian Christian Jews. Jews. And the persecution is designed to get those Jews who are Christians to do what? To go back to the law, to to apostatize, to fall away, to leave the Christian faith, and specifically go back to Moses, i.e., go back to Judaism pre-Christ, or technically Judaism post-Christ, but that's a complicated conversation. So go to Judaism without Jesus... That's what they're being tempted to do. So, his argument then is designed to make one simple point that Jesus is better, and in this particular case, better than the Old Testament with no Jesus. There's no comparison between Jesus and the Old Testament without Jesus. So, what he's done is he's staged an argument leading up to comparing the climax of his argument is that Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. Better high priest than the entire system of the Levitical priesthood. But to get there, he takes stages. So the first thing he shows us that Jesus is superior to is angels. Exactly. He's superior to angels. And then we get that weird expression that he was for a little while made lower than the angels, but has become superior to them. Now, in what possible sense could Jesus ever be called lower than the angels when he, was a human. He was a human. when he incarnated but his incarnation didn't stop there he was crucified buried That's rose true. from the dead in a glorified body and now in that glorified body is where right, hand. right, right hand. Hand. seated right hand at the right hand of the father so now jesus is he was already superior to angels but now in a new way he has become superior to angels do we are there papers back there yes no, good. they're good okay there is All right, so Jesus has become superior to angels. That's step one in the argument. Jesus has become superior to angels. Now, how does he lead that further into Old Testament theology? What did the angels provide in the Old Testament according to the Jewish thought? The law. So the angels gave the law. You see that expression, angel of the Lord, a lot. The Hebrews, in their systematic theology, and from a Christian perspective, we wouldn't quite say it this way. But it is the way they taught it, is that angels delivered the law to Moses. And since Jesus is better than angels, then consequently he's better than the law that Moses received. So now he's better than Moses. Moses. So it went from angels to Moses. And Moses, when we say Moses in a Jewish setting, we usually don't mean a person. We mean what? Their faith, their system, the law. When we say Moses, we mean that system of thought. Jesus is better than that whole system. The entire law, the covenant, the whole system that Moses delivered, Jesus is better. Then we ended up with this visual paradigm, which was Moses led the people out of Egypt, into the wilderness, and in the wilderness received the law. But how many people did Moses take to the promised land? Not a one. one. Moses didn't take any. Two made it, but not even under Moses' leadership. Comparing that to Christ, he's a better minister than Moses. So he does lead his people, not just into the wilderness, not just into the law of God, but where? All the way to the Promised Land. And what's it called in chapter four? Do you remember? It wasn't called the Promised Land in the end. It was called the, the. Did somebody say it? It is the resurrection, but it's not called that in chapter 4. That is correct. You're not wrong, though. But the rest, the great Sabbath. I thought I heard the word rest from somewhere. It was just four miles away, so I had to, (laughs) by by hearing, is not perfect. There you go. go. Exactly. Exactly. All right. I think I'm getting into some of the blanks. No? Okay, no. So catching up to where we were last week. All right. So he said he was leading towards Jesus being a better priest than Levi because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then if you remember, last week is where that argument, we pressed pause, or grammatically speaking, we put an open parenthesis, and that parenthesis lasted from halfway through chapter 5, all of chapter 6, until the very first word of chapter 7. Meaning, as far as the argument goes, you could remove all of chapter 6 and half of chapter 5 and you wouldn't realize it was missing, because it's all a side note. It's a beautiful side note that we need, that he needed to say. And if you remember how he worded, we're, we're going to talk about this. i got a lot to say about this Melchizedek, but what was the but? You're dull of hearing. You should be teachers, but you're not teachers. You're drinking milk. I wish we could go on and talk about the important stuff. And we will, if God permits, but right now we can't. Because you're being tempted to walk away from Christ. And we went through that apostasy section. But how did the apostasy section end? On a positive note or a negative note? Do you remember? It's positive. And what was the positive? And what about the resurrection? He doesn't think they're going to apostatize. He doesn't think they're going to Why? <laughs> hey, you can walk in the right direction. Because really, like, well, what God does you works. Really that you can't okay, all right. Both of those statements are, so what Jeff said and what uh, um, Monica said in the back are both true. So Jeff said because what Jesus does works, uh, his ministry is fruitful, and I've already forgot what you said. Just, just because, say it again. Because like, genuinely that, okay, they genuinely had faith. So we we proved, I think convincingly, that if you have genuine faith in this Ministry of Jesus that actually works, it's not possible to apostatize anyway. That was the whole point of the argument because we have a steadfast anchor of the soul that our God, who is unchanging, will be faithful to fulfill his promise. That's how the apostasy section ends. Steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, did that sound like? Be careful, you might lose your salvation any minute. No. It did not. It ended with this glorious affirmation of assurance. So let's fill in a few of the blanks. So the first one, Jesus is a better <laughs> minister than Moses because his ministry produces results. That's, that's the leading into that. We've done six chapters of Jesus is better, and specifically he's better, and that he produces results compared to the system of Moses. And then, second one, This is where we ended last week. God has promised by his unchangeable character. Do you remember what was the statement specifically in chapter 6? We were told God could not do something. Cannot lie. He said it was impossible for God to lie. Now let's just side note. let's, Let's emphasize how big a deal that is. Are we saying that God does not lie? That's not what we're saying. We're saying he Can. cannot. It's not possible. It's not that he chooses not to forever. It's that he literally cannot lie. You follow what I'm saying? It's not possible. Which is, we'll get the statement later on in this same book, Jesus Christ is the same today and Tomorrow. Forever, forever. So Jesus never changes. That's because he's part of this God that never changes. So because of his unchangeable character, he's promised to bring his people into the promised land. Now, if you don't see clearly by chapter 11, that promised land, that future rest, this glorious day coming, all of these things are very precisely in the book of Hebrews, references to the resurrection of the dead. That will be... Boldly stated by the end of chapter 11. In fact, the hall of faith is the hall of faith in the future resurrection. That's what that whole chapter is about. And when we get to the end of chapter 11, you can read that and totally miss it, but you see it the first time, you can't unsee it. Hebrews is all about the resurrection, and Jesus has promised his people get to the resurrection. It's one of my favorite chapters in John, chapter 6. He tells his people, the people follow him. He says, I came to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I would not lose any that has been given to me, and that I would raise it up on the last day. That's Jesus' plan. His mission from God the Father is that he would do a ministry that lost none of the ones given to him, but that at the end, he would raise them from the dead. Same thing going on in Hebrews. He's promised by his unchangeable character He's taking his people to the promised land. He's not going to be Moses. He's going to be Christ, the Messiah. And then we end it. In fact, let's reread this. So chapter 6, verse 19, last, last sentence here, the last two verses. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, that's a specific reference. What is that place? Holy of Holies. So if you know how the temple is laid out, just in very non-to-scale terms, you got the temple area. This place is holy. You don't really get to go in here much. But then you got the Holy of Holies. Who goes in here? The, priest. the, high, priest. High, the high priest. How often? Once a year. Once a year. What they do to make sure he didn't die in there. Or not to make sure he didn't Tied die. Tied a rope to his foot. But in case he died... Tied a rope so they could drag his dead body out. That's intimidating stuff. But what's it saying here? What kind of assurance do we have as believers in Christ? A steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters. We have a hope that goes in right here. Enters into the Holy of Holies. behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. On our behalf, having become the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is right in there in the Holy of Holies and administers his priestly duties on whose behalf? Ours. Well, who did that in the Old Testament? We said the high priest did that. He went in, administered his duties on our behalf after having done what for himself? Had to cleanse his own self before he could go in. Jesus, however, goes in and administers his duties as the perfect son of God, made perfect through suffering. So we've come back full circle. We're now closing the parentheses and finishing this conversation about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the last blank in that opening section, Jesus has entered the Holy Holy, Holy of Holies and has faithfully and effectually administered his priestly duties. Faithfully and effectually. Y'all you know what the word effectually means? It works. it works. He didn't just drop it in the room and say, all right, hope this is helpful for you. But he makes it work. That's what we're saying. Jesus applies his redemption faithfully. All right, here we go. Let's dive in. So Hebrews... It was only 20 minutes of introduction, so we'll, we'll be good. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Mm-hmm. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Mo- Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to, a- and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. All right, so quick side note um, Melchizedek shows up in Scripture. Well, in the Old Testament anyway, two times. He's in there twice. One of them is what story? (laughs) That one, the one we just read. And so that's, that's in Genesis. If you want to read it, it's in Genesis chapter 14. But it's basically exactly what was said there. It's about four verses long. And it's really not any more descriptive than what you just read. That's the other one. The other, that's the first one, the other one is in Psalm 110, and it's in verse 4. Psalm 110 is the one Jesus is quoting. Anytime he gets in an argument with the Pharisees, it's like he drops the Psalm 110 question, and everybody walks away dumbfounded, and Jesus is smarter than them. That's the one that starts off by saying, "Um, And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies the footstool of your feet. And he says, How can David... Call the coming Messiah Lord if he's his son. That's that psalm. Clear messianic psalm. Everyone interpreted it as a messianic psalm. Halfway through the psalm is the second scriptural reference to Melchizedek. No reference to Melchizedek, period, other than Abraham met this dude. He'd killed some kings going to save his brother. and nephew, Right. I was like, that didn't feel right. He, he, he killed the kings on the way back. He meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses him. A little verbal blessing. Mostly just blessing God, but blessing kind of Abraham in the blessing. And then Abraham gives him a tenth, or a tithe. That's the whole narrative. Fast forward a few thousand years. Well, 1,500 years. Now it's almost two. No, David. I'm going to David, not Jesus thousand years forward we get to david and there's this psalm second reference to melchizedek so a lot of time has gone by no new information about melchizedek you follow where i'm getting at like this very elusive character and then all of a sudden this messiah who's going to be david's descendant but also david's lord is called and we get a quotation from it in verse 17 you are a priest forever after the order of melchizedek the second reference to Melchizedek in Scripture. And the second reference is that the Messiah would be what? He'd be a high priest after that order. And in the Old Testament it's like, what? It's real elusive. Don't have a lot of detail here. Shrouded in mystery kind of concept. And everything we know about how this works comes from the chapter we're reading. So this is the New Testament's Explanation of what was going on with that guy. So, you follow where we're at? So, he mentioned twice in the Old Testament, so we know very little about him. Second, Abraham paid tithes to him. Oh, let's not fill in that blank until so we we'll go further. So, let's talk about who he is. Um, so, part way through verse 2. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. So, that's interesting. Um, in the Hebrew language, when we translate things, so literally, his name is not Melchizedek; it's M.L.K. Uh, Z.D.K. Does that make sense? Hebrew does not have vowels. I mean, they do; they just don't write them. They're only verbal. But you can imagine it's annoying and complicated when you're taking Hebrew in seminary, because sometimes the difference between two words the vowels. And you look at it and say, well how do you know which one it is? And people who read Hebrew say, that's obvious. And the second language speaker says, to you, but because of that, we'll say like certain names mean certain things. We don't mean they literally mean those things. We mean they share the vowels, or sorry, share the consonants of those things. So you take those three consonants right there, you put the right vowels in, it means king. You take these three, you put the right uh, vowels in, and it means uh, righteousness. Just a quick side note so you understand how that works. So in Hebrew, it doesn't literally say king of righteousness, but like names usually are put the right vowels in, it's the same root. So literally the root is king and the root is righteousness. But the name is just Melchizedek. Make sense at all? Y'all with me? Okay. So that's the first thing. He's the king of righteousness. That's important though. Let's circle that. King. Next, it says not only is the king of righteousness, then he is also... The king of Salem. Right, let's talk about Salem. Now, if we were making that in Hebrew, what would we do? S-L-M. Exactly. Let's just write it that way. Well, S-L-M. Does that remind you of any Hebrew expression that Hebrews might say to one another if they were greeting one another? Because wow. S and SH are the same letter in Hebrew. You put different vowels in there. In Hebrew, it's literally the exact same word. The vowels make it two different things. So he's not just the king of this place called Salem. We could say he's the king of peace. Exactly. I don't know if you care, but to me that stuff is fascinating. I just... I. I I'll like stay up at night thinking about that. I'm like, oh that is so cool. But anyway, there you go. Quick side note. So he's the king of righteousness and king of shalom, king of peace. He is about the word Vladimir in Russian. Everyone knows Vladimir, it a good Russian name. Yeah. Vladimir is a very of peace. Oh really? Well, since we're going that route, the name um, Anastasia? Everyone know the name? Yeah. That is for the Greek time. word for resurrection. Anastasis, stand up. Just, if we're doing side notes, you know, those <laughs> are fun. <fine, laughs> that has no bearing on tonight whatsoever. I'm thinking before the revolution, they were Orthodox. Oh, Greek Orthodox, so they have a lot of Greek influence in there. Like the, um, it's a Russian name, Anatoly. Isn't that a Russian name? That's the Greek word for East. Just literally, Greek word for East. I don't know how we go. Anyway, there we go. Whatever. Here we go. Because <laughs> of that secret you subtext it. in Hebrew. I might as well. Yeah. So the king of Salem was Salem a once? Yes. Was it, was, yeah. I don't know. I know what you're about to ask, and I don't know. I don't but someone you know, might, and I'll Google it. Now that you've Sorry. asked. All right, now we get into the tricky bit. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so... Depending on how you read that, what are the options for what that just said? So a lot of people would say he's Jesus. He's eternal. He has no father or mother like Jesus. Because Jesus had no father or mother. Well, no, actually he did. Yeah. And even in Eternity, he's got one as well. And in the Incarnation, he has a beginning, still has no ending. Okay, here's where I'm getting with that. If you read this verse literally, it very quickly breaks down. And I don't think it's a wise move to say that this Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, Is Jesus He's Resembling Jesus He's Like Jesus Alright We'll keep going And I I think that'll get more clear as we go But this is where the debate happens What you got, Abby? Well, no, that's what some people are saying I'm saying it doesn't mean that Because what I'm saying Oh, what you got? Context-wise, it makes sense though, because he's already taken us through Moses was like Jesus, so this is the next. The next guy who's like Jesus. Alright, so. Say that again, cause you Alright, so Moses was like Jesus, but Jesus was better. Now Melchizedek is going to be like Jesus, but Jesus is better. I was just saying it's a good follows the pattern okay here's what i'm going to suggest and not by myself a lot of a lot of people would make this exact same claim is that he is without father mother or genealogy is that in the bible narrative how much do we know about where he came from nothing Uh, but we don't know anything about his people his heritage his parents his ethnicity, nothing. How much do we know about his end? Nothing, nothing. <laughs> nothing whatsoever. Well, that makes a really good illustration for God. Where did God come from? <laughs> well, we we don't, we couldn't even know. If it could be known, it would, he, he didn't come from there. You follow what I'm saying? And towards the future, what can we know about the ending of God? It doesn't. It doesn't. We couldn't see it if it was right. It's elusive, so we'll make sense of that as we go. But let's keep going and just see if we can put it together along the way. So, verse 4. So, see how great this man was. Now, is the author of Hebrews trying to make a big deal about Melchizedek? Yes. Yes, he is. No question about that. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Now, how big a deal is Abraham to a Jewish audience? Father Abraham. Father Abraham. This is Abraham we're talking about. Abraham. In fact, Moses, Paul, when he wants to make an argument and trump Moses, who's he use? Abraham. Oh, you think Moses said something? Well, This is what Abraham said. Boom. You know, mic drop. This is Abraham. But what the author of Hebrews just said. Oh, you got Abraham? Well, check out Melchizedek. Why? Because what did Abraham do? He gave the offering to him. The only reason why we know he's great is just because Abraham... Yeah, because Abraham... didn't. Yeah, so really from a historical perspective, we would say we recognize Melchizedek's greatness because we recognize Abraham's. And Abraham, Abraham yielded to this dude. Yeah. Whoa, that would be the logic. Does that make sense? So, because of that, those descendants of Levi... Who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. So, if you remember, you have Israel, Jacob, and then twelve tribes. One tribe, however, gets separate. This is Levi, and you got Judah, etc., for a total of twelve. Right? One was God's set apart. And actually, you end up having 12 on this side, one on this side. So technically, there's 13 um, because Joseph didn't get his own tribe. He gets split into two, and Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Ephraim, interestingly enough, becomes the largest tribe. But uh, So you technically, you got 13. Levi is God's firstborn of the people of Israel, set apart. And they have to give their tithes to Levi to support the Levitical priesthood. And that's what supported ultimately the sacrificial system. The entire system of ministering in the temple was supported through the tithe. And he's saying this happened, in this particular case, between brothers. Now he's being metaphorical here because these 12 brothers do not tithe to Levi. What do we mean? Their descendants tithe to the tribe. Of Levi. You get what I'm saying? So, but he's backing up, using it metaphorically. So, that's the original scenario. And and they're all descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent from them, um, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So, we take this tree back up to Abraham. This guy to this guy. We'll just call him Mil- the <laughs> Hebrew name. Alright, so you follow what I'm saying? These guys are priests by virtue of what? Birth. Genealogy. Melchizedek is priest by virtue of recognition. (laughs) God made him priest. Just God made him priest. You see the difference? That's what he's getting at. Is he human? Is he human? I think he's human. I do. Um, right. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So who did the blessing? Abraham did the tithing. Who did the blessing? Kizadeh did the blessing. y'all you know the Greek word for blessing? The Greek word is such a beautiful word. You, you, you actually know this word in English. We use this word in funerals. Eulogy. A eulogy. What do you do with a eulogy? Literally, all right, good, logos, word, good, word. That's what it means to bless someone. So eulogy... That's why of eulogy, you know, especially if you knew the person, like, that dude was a jerk. That doesn't get brought up, (laughs) right? About all the good things in it. Because, I mean, this is the place to rehash all that. You want to celebrate life. Now, let's let's remember the good. So let's speak a good word at that funeral. But when we say in the Bible, this is the expression for blessing. So when God blesses, literally, we mean he spoke a good word over you. So God tells Abraham... He blesses Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's a blessing. When God does it, though, what's it mean? It's it's a promise. You could call it prophecy. It happens. Patriarchs do the same thing. If you remember the story when Israel is giving the blessings here to his descendants, do those blessings turn into real history? They do. He gives the scepter to Judah. Well, who ends up having the kingly line? David, who is in the tribe of Judah. This is how that works. and um, We see it even in other patriarchs further up. Um, Even through deceit, um, Isaac blesses Jacob. Man, this is really messing me up tonight. Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. So who gets the blessing? Jacob Jacob does. The blessing is real and actual. It happens. But you can only do that If you're the superior, blessing the inferior. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. What does that prove Melchizedek is? He's superior to Abraham. His position as high priest of God Most High makes him superior to Abraham. And then if we go another step further, Let's, let's finish that verse. So in the one case, tithes are received by mortal man. In the other case, by of one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Right, here's what he's making a point. So if Melchizedek, is superior to Abraham, where does Levi fit? He's under Abraham, therefore under Melchizedek. Because he's he's still in the loins of Abraham when this blessing is made. You see where he's going with the argument. What what do you think he's trying to prove here? That if you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, what what is the high priest according to Levi? You're above. You're above that priest. That's where he's going. So let's look at verse 11. Let's see. Let's fill in one blank. So Abraham paid tithes to Levi. Therefore, Levi paid tithes to him. That is Melchizedek. Second blank under Melchizedek. What was the first Twice. He is mentioned twice in Scripture. And when I say Scripture, I really should have said Old Testament. I mean the Old Testament there. He's referenced a dozen times here in Hebrew. And then just just go ahead and fill in the next two. So I would argue Melchizedek is not, absolutely not, the incarnate Christ. And very unlikely is he the pre-incarnate Christ. He can't be the incarnate Christ. though. That's not on the table. Do you understand the difference? What's the incarnate Christ? The one who came in the flesh. When did that happen? In the New Testament, there is no incarnate Christ when Melchizedek was here, so that's not an option. So you'll read some books, and it sounds like Jesus is standing there receiving tithes from Abraham, and he's got nail scarred hands and a wound on his side, and it's like, dude, that's, that's not a time travel movie. Not in there. Right, that's <laughs> not how this works. That hasn't happened yet. That happened in time. You follow what I'm saying? All right. I would say then that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Type. David is also one. Adam is one. Lots of guys, actually, are types of Christ. Lots of events are types of gospel. And so here, what that is, a type, is an Old Testament pattern created by God to explain the person and ministry of Christ. Marriage is a type. All right, so marriage, it's not that marriage is a good illustration or metaphor to explain the church. It's that God created marriage to explain the relationship between Christ and the church. You understand the difference? It's not like Paul was like, well, here's a good analogy. It's not an analogy. It's a typology. God created marriage to show us what Christ and the church should look like. It's the purpose. God created Melchizedek to prepare a priesthood that allowed the Messiah to be a priest not under Levi, to be a Davidic Judite priest and still a uh, king, and then still be the priest that the old testament needed for our salvation. Does that make any sense at all? Let's keep, we'll we'll say it again as we go. All right, here we are. So let's keep going. Where did we leave off? What verse? Uh, Verse 11. So here we are. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, now that if statement tells us something about the Old Testament Levitical code. If if perfection had been attainable, what did that just say? That it's not. It wasn't. It was not attainable in the old system. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for um, under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? We've got two priesthoods here. The descendants of Aaron and then this Melchizedek priesthood. If the Aaron priesthood worked, Why would we need another Melchizedek priest? We wouldn't. So why do we? Because it didn't work. That's exactly what that's saying. Why would we raise up another one rather than the one after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The logic there is perfect. Where does the Levitical priesthood come from in your Old Testament? Torah. Where's Leviticus? <laughs> it's one of the five books. It's literally the law of Moses. So if we don't do Levitical priesthood, we've already made an assumption. If we don't do the law of Moses. You follow what I'm saying? That's where he's leading. Not that We don't throw it away. That's different. That's another conversation. We are not, however, under, in the same sort of way, the law of Moses, if we're changing priesthoods, because the law of Moses means Levi. If we go to Melchizedek instead, we have to leave Moses and do something else. So that's kind of the reason why we don't do 613 things right every day. Yeah, it, yeah or we don't the, have this. This is part of that conversation. Yeah, it's that's a nuanced conversation. We don't have time to fully hash out. But what is this? Abraham's time, which I think is around the 2000s B.C. Does anybody have a study Bible that notes? That's off the top of my head. I don't remember. 1800s at the most recent B.C.-ish. Okay, okay. All right, so let's keep going. Verse, let's see, 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken... Belonged to another tribe. Now, remember, Hebrews uses non-explicit language. We would never in English get away with saying, for the one of whom these things are spoken. That's a lot of words, and we could replace that with what? <laughs> this person. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay. All right. That's all we would say in English. Jesus belonged to another tribe. That's what we're saying. And what tribe is that? Going to be Judah, from which, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Did Judites get to be priests? No. No. Precisely because they're Judites. What, who gets to be priests? Levites. And technically, it's even more exclusive than Levites. Sons of, Sons of Aaron inside. So you have Levi. Within Levi, you got Aaron. You got to be in the smaller circle to be a high priest. To be a priest at all. And Jesus does not meet the qualifications to be the high priest according to the law of Moses. That's the big deal here. That's the argument. Think about it. If you're a Jew and you want to disprove the high priestly ministry of Christ, this is your number one spot. You say, listen, you make a big deal that Jesus is a descendant of Judah. Already won. He's disqualified from being the Old Testament high priest. And The author of Hebrews steps in and says, (laughs) You heard of Melchizedek? (laughs) And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. The Messiah was going to be a priest. We were told this, but not of Levi, of Melchizedek. Abraham paid tithes to. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident... When another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, the word another and the word likeness are really strong indications that this is not the same Melchizedek. We've got another priest after the order of Melchizedek who's like him, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So how did the ancient priest become High priest? By being, born that way. by being born that way. Jesus does not become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek by bodily descent, but by what? By the power of an indestructible life. What made Jesus the high priest under the order of Melchizedek? The resurrection. He is declared the Son of God. He becomes the one who sits on the throne at the right hand of God the Father he is now the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which was quoting that psalm, Psalm 110. Verse 18. So on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. What's he referring to here as being useless? The law. Specifically the litical priesthood within the law. For the law made nothing Perfect. Now, you see how he uses priesthood and law almost interchangeably, right? They're, one's useless. But the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See where he's going with this argument? Because so if he's talking to Jews, has he convinced them that they don't want to go through <laughs> Levi? They need to go through Melchizedek. I think he's winning the argument right now. I think he's showing very clearly, you want to go through one that works. And that's not Levi, that's Jesus. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, that is they were born in it, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest Forever. Now, that's from the same Psalm. It's just quoting another part of it. So, do I? 110. 110. Yeah, I think it's the previous verse. You go back and look. It's only like eight verses long. So, he's quoting the same Psalm. So, he's saying, God made Jesus this priesthood by an oath. We'll go back to chapter 6. What does God do with his oaths? He keeps them. Can he not keep them? Not an option. Not possible. The former priest... I'm sorry, verse 22. Oh, this verse is beautiful. This makes Jesus the grantor of a better covenant. can't say it more clearly than that. Jesus is the head of a better covenant. The former high priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently... Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's finish reading through it and then we're we'll filling some blanks. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priest, but the word of the oath, that is, God has sworn, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So he's comparing the two priesthoods. So let's do that. Levitical priesthood, priest by genealogy, priest by genealogy, ends by what? Yeah. Death. Probably guess the next one. Stained by sin, tied to the law of Moses. Let's compare that to Melchizedek. Priest by you know, I put appointment, but I was actually going to change it to oath just now. I like oath better because it's the word in the text. So let's put oath. Oath. Priest by oath. Never ends. But yeah, that's why it never ends. Never dies. Perfect through going two weeks back. Instead of sin, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Made perfect through suffering. And then instead of being tied to the law of Moses, it's tied to the new covenant. New covenant. So, let's think about these benefits. The benefits of the high high priesthood of Christ. Number one, and this is coming specifically from verse 25. Jesus saves completely. Completely. So my idea there is trajectory. If you're here, his goal is to get you over here and raise from the dead. He gets there. He's going to complete the work he's started. He saves to the uttermost. Uttermost is the far end of something. You follow what I'm saying? And second, Jesus saves continually. Now, why would he need to save continually? screw up because we sin daily he didn't so he didn't have to make regular sacrifice for us i mean for himself but he does regularly have to minister to us now does he re-sacrifice for us no what was the expression once for all he offered up himself but he still ministers to us first john chapter two if you little little brothers i'm writing the little children i'm writing this to you in order that you might not sin if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one who is our big word propitiation he's continually applying that to us as our high priest and then number three jesus saves us consistently Meaning, it works on every person it's used on. That's what I'm getting at. How do you see words? It just kicked in. That alliteration happened at the end. I couldn't help it. So, But if the blood of Jesus is working on you, you get here. If you fall off, I would say it's because what? You never worked. The blood of Jesus was not working. So, been following the Joshua Harris controversy lately. He never was, if he's an apostate today. So, the kiss dating goodbye guy. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very disappointing. Yeah, I've, I've read, I've read what was, yeah, going on. It's very disappointing. It was crazy that we, that happened the day after the night we talked about apostasy like, Wow, there we go. Did we trigger something? I don't, I don't think we caused it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of controversy about that because you think this guy or this person was so genuine. Up until, up until the last summer, Judas, Judas was too, yeah. Judas was too. Judas did all of those. He went out and They all asked Jesus, <laughs> Is it me? They didn't say, Judas, You know what's interesting about that is Jesus says, I didn't lose anybody you gave me, except for the son of perdition, and that was planned. You know, it's like that's because that's how he does his ministry. He doesn't lose anybody. And if you fall off, it's because you weren't his. So, okay, all right. So and, I think the question that you thought I was going to ask was not the question. Oh, maybe isn't. So i are going to go for it. Was he Jewish? Oh. No. No one was. Abraham was technically not Jewish either. Said, no, that's not what I thought you were going to ask. You said king of Salem, and I was thinking Jerusalem. Salem. I was like, is this the same Salem later? And I don't know. Because David had to conquer it when he was king. It wasn't. Israel. It was supposed to be because they conquered the land, but they didn't conquer the land, you know. So I don't know. That's what I thought you were going to ask. So but no, he was not Israel a Jew. Was not Jewish. Not But he was a priest of the correct God, right. of the Most High God. Okay. Can I... Yeah. That's good just work. Just because they didn't call them that. No, the so system is That's the right God, but the system that we would call Judaism and what makes you a Jew was did not exist. We don't know a lot about Job's story, like in terms of where it's placed. It could he, he could post date that. We don't know. The story is very old, and most people lean towards its patriarchal period, and therefore he wouldn't be. But he's worshiping the right God. That's still questions all over your face, Joy. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> <laughs> well, I always assumed he was because he sacrificed for his family he didn't have a priest didn't have a place didn't have a priest to go yeah. but that would make patriarchal sense yeah so and that's one of the arguments people make for he's patriarchal so he was technically <laughs> in camp but he was on another fringe of the camp than I particularly like but yeah he he's the he's the charismatic version of Calvinism and I'm not, and so it's like we had areas of disagreement, you know. John MacArthur's probably going, see? <laughs> <laughs> see? <laughs> Told, you <so. laughs> Told you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he I don't know I am being facetious, I have no idea how John MacArthur responded. <laughs> but uh anyway, all right. Well let's uh hey, seven twenty-nine. We'll call that a win. Look at that. So let's pray and we'll be <laughs> Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you bless the message we've read. And above all, God, help us to focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us see him as our great high priest who saves to the uttermost so that he would be the steadfast anchor of our soul, who has entered as our forerunner into the Holy of Holies and made a once for all sacrifice on our behalf. God, I pray that this would become real in our hearts and minds. We would taste and see that it is good, and then we would respond worship in worship and faithfulness.